It's Tuesday, October 1st, 2019, and you're listening to episode 525 of Fear the Boot, a show about tabletop role-playing games and a little bit more. Running time for this episode is 56 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is Wayne. My name's Chad. And I'm Dale. All right, two things. Same two things as last week. First of all, the Gamers Table Kickstarter for Season of the Glitch is still going on. As of the recording, which is about a week before release, they have gotten through, I believe, full funding and the first stretch goal or two. I Yeah, I think they got the first stretch goal but in. But they've still got some more to go. Yeah, the, so if you the want- next level is their Trench Monkey show, Big 20, which is their live GM show, and I think something else, but I'm not sure. Yeah, so if you want to support them and also hear more of their content and also from some of us that have been asked to guest over there, then I will put a link to that in the show notes. And then, Wayne? Again, Fear the Con. On the Facebook group, I've been doing a lot of questions, a lot of polls, trying to get people's opinions on things. So if you want to have any impact, say, influence on things coming up for Fear the Con next year, which again is June 18th, 19th, and 20th. Mark your calendar. This is your chance to jump onto Facebook in the Fear the Con group and interact, give us feedback, and it will also potentially impact what we put as backer reward levels when we do the Kickstarter. Right. And we are going to be launching that Kickstarter at the top of October. So they've decided what my game is going to be that I run for a backer level at Fear the Con. It's the Dresden game, isn't yep. it? Dresden Files, Fear the Con, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, which is a takeoff of in the Dresden Files. There was a, because Chad gave me this look. In the Dresden Files, there was one of the books had a horror convention. Splattercon, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Did they write out the word exclamation point? Yes, they make a big point of it in the book. Since this is a Dresden game, gotcha. and I've already decided I'm going to have custom buttons made for my players that says, fear the con in like dripping red blood, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And just give those to my players for the game. You should reach out to Jim Butcher, see if he wants to be in his game. Or you should get Brodor to be like the causal event that the reason all this horror breaks out is because Brodor finally messes with the Ouija board and summons the darkness. He like <laughs> opens a gateway and all these horrors, well, like everything he thinks would happen, like just sit down with a tape recorder, whatever, and be like, Brodor, what do you think would happen if you mess with a Ouija board and just get him to lay it out. And that right there is the setup of the game. That's the start point of the plot. I like this <laughs> is, Whatever he thinks would occur is exactly what would occur. Because that worked for my Over the Berm game. Because I ran that game that was a inspector's game mm. that took place. It was set. There was a bonus episode we did some years back. I don't think it was a regular episode that just went wildly off kilter. Yeah. Where we thought Pat was going to kill all of us on a golf course. <laughs> Real story. I'll link to that episode in the show notes. It's a funny story if you've never heard it. But I decided to run a game where that really was what was going on. And I pulled Pat aside and I said, Pat, the plot here, because he could do this really good. I, I, I think it was Ted, Ted Kennedy. And the so, one who drowned hookers. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I said, Pat, the plot of this game, 
is I said, I want you to discreetly pick Broder's mind for all the conspiracy theories that he thinks are true, for all the UFOs and eyes wide shut parties and gold foiled babies and everything that he thinks is going on. And the plot of this game is it is all absolutely 100% true. And the ghost of Ted Kennedy has possessed you to kill Brodor so that none of this information gets out. And wasn't Ted Kennedy alive at that point? Yes, he was alive at that point. And so Brodor and I played in this game as ourselves. Yeah, and Brodor and Wayne played Brodor and Wayne, and Pat played Pat. And somebody else had to play me because I was running it. Mm -hmm. But everybody in there... Oh, that's your limit, though. (laughs) All this stuff. But... Fair is fair. <laughs> You're <laughs> Every, not going to play yourself. Everybody in there was somebody real. The gulag woman that mm-hmm. used to walk the streets all the time, she mm-hmm. was in there. Mm-hmm. So everybody was somebody real. Hmm. Point being, though, Fear the Con coming June what, 18th, 19th, and 20th. Yep. Uh, Those are the actual con dates. 18th is the wing night yep. and the Mikey Mason performance. 19th and 20th are the convention dates. And when is the Kickstarter going to start? The top of October. So Febtoba of this year of 2019. So we're just talking about, like I said, a week or two away, depending on whether you're catching this show raw on Patreon or edited on the main feed. So with that said and done, we're going to move to our topic and we are combining a question because there was a question that was asked on Facebook and somebody came back and sort of added a secondary question to it. We are merging these questions Mm -hmm. together. The questions come from a gentleman named Craig and a gentleman named Jason. What we're combining their questions into is they asked, when we are creating a setting, and whether that setting is for a specific game or whether we are creating something whole cloth, how do we go about creating that setting? But specifically, and this is where we're combining the two questions, with an eye toward... How do we decide what kind of story or what kind of facts we're going to deal with for the player characters? Because the example that I was using when we were prepping this amongst ourselves is I said, think about the Mass Effect video game. When they wrote the Mass Effect video game, it had a large and detailed universe to it. And that was written by a group of people. But the large and detailed universe is not the same as deciding what story are you going to tell within that universe and what places are the players going to visit during their time in that universe, which if it was not the same team of people, it was at least an overlapping team of people. I I believe it was a nearly identical team of people that made these two decisions. And the same thing's true of a role-playing game. That if we're sitting down and we're creating our own setting, or maybe creating our own entire game, complete with system and setting, how do we decide these are the things we're going to develop and these are the things that we want to show in the game and take the players past and here's the plot points we want to bring out or the world aspects that we want to bring out in the course of the game. So I think the first thing I'm going to look at is interests. All right. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to put this in two angles and we're going to deal with these separately. I'll introduce them now, but they're going to require their own blocks of time. The one is the creator's interest. OK, so the game master or the world builder, or whatever you want to call yourself in this role, 
When you sat down and made this setting, obviously certain things intrigued you. There were certain themes you wanted to bring out. There were certain cultures or races that you found most interesting. There were certain places that you felt were worth developing. Obviously, something caught your attention. Even if you are making the world's most effectively generic D&D setting, there is still some motivation to why you built this world. It could even be a non-story thing. Like, I'm not really into sci-fi, but fantasy's easy, and I, everybody knows fantasy. Elves, dwarves, humans, castles, whatever. And you're there, and it's just easy, and then you can start... That burden of picking the right perfect setting is kind of taken away, and now you can do your story set in that sort of container. Yeah. You know, if I use Skies of Glass as an example, post-Nuke World, one of the things that intrigued me and led to a lot of what I chose to deal with in the game is how those events affected the world. The idea that humanity doesn't change, but the specifics of the moment in time do. So things look different. There might be different proper nouns. Things are going to evolve a bit. But it's this thought exercise of what if I took things I really knew and interrupted them with a major world event and tried to play that out as realistically as I could, which is one of the reasons why almost all the Skies of Glass games that I run are set in and around places that I live in and know. That's why almost every campaign I've run, not all of them, but almost all of them, have taken place in either eastern Missouri or western Illinois, because these are the areas that I am most familiar with. And so it lets me do these thought exercises of what would happen to the neighborhoods and industries and landmarks and buildings that I know if they were put through this transition. That's what attracted me to the idea of creating this game, was this thought experiment. I'm going to tangent off of that one. One of the things I like about running Dresden Files, I've run con games of it, I've run the campaign and all, is kind of similar. I always run it so far in a location that I know. And then instead of doing what you've done and say, this event happens, how did it change? Instead, I go back and say, okay, well, this is what the world is like. What if it's not like that? Mm-hmm. And I start doing the alternate history of, you know, okay, we know the real history of why Branson developed as it is, why St. Louis developed as it is. How do we get to this point if vampires if that, were there? Exactly. And that's one of the first things I start doing when I'm kind of developing a what is that world like in a Dresden game is I start looking at those tweaking things. You know, where are the the big myths that happen, the big stories what really happened for each of those? You know, this is what the public knows, but yeah. what is secretly going on? And I love that same kind of exploration of this is the world I know, but what could it be? The question is the why. That's where the interest is when you're making a, a sort of a setting or an area or something like that. Why is it like that? The how question, how did it get like that, is more academic. Once you answer the the why is it like that, then you can start putting the pieces together of how it came about. Yeah, and that is the next step for me when mm-hmm. developing a setting is that how. Yeah. Right. Well, let me ask a uh, chicken and egg question here. Which should come first, the campaign idea or the setting? If you're making up both out of whole cloth, should you make the campaign first and then 
uh, change the setting to fit the campaign that you want to run? Or should you come up with the setting first and then figure out a campaign that fits in that setting? It, it is my belief that everything, system setting, all of it, is your bitch for the fun of the table. I fully and utterly believe that. I know there are some people that they really like it how it's written, right? They want to be, this is what's written, this is what's going to be. The rules are the rules, the settings the setting, and that's cool if that's your style. But if you're asking for my opinion, everything is your bitch, <laughs> and you make it do what you want for the sake of the game. And so for me, I would say absolutely the setting is the subject of the campaign. For me, it, it morphs. I can't really tell you what comes first or how or why. I was thinking about one of my games that I ran that I really, really liked running, which was a Small Town of Cattle Skull, which was my one shot I ran at Fear the Con. And it's like, oh, well, that's a Western. Well, okay, that's a supernatural Western. I'm like, where did that come from? Did I say I wanted to do a Western and boom, we're in the Wild West and the desert and all that? For me, it was a conversation about alternates in our Fear of the Con system. Do you seat them? Do you tell them to piss off? What do you do? Are they important to the plot? Are they not important to the plot? And it was me watching this this conversation, me saying, what if the alternates were the main characters and the players were the side characters? How would that work? And then I was like, I've been wanting to run a Western for a long time. And it wasn't like, oh, here's my opportunity to run a Western. But it was more like just this not even conscious thought that slipped in where it's like, well, in a Western, you have archetypes, the robbers, and then the innocents. And how do you make, how do you flip that? See, do you make the innocents the main character? And then from there, it just kind of like kept going. It's like, I can make this and I want to, it, it's already a weird concept. Yeah. So I'm going to add this whole supernatural element to it. But I don't want them casting spells. I want this to be dead, uh, Deadlands. They're dead. Okay, I'm going to go with that. See, and, but, you know, they're just all I, and I think this is actually an excellent illustration of the point that I'm trying to get at. And Chad, you're an interesting case study in this because... He's an interesting case study in a whole lot of things. He is. He's got a head case. Yeah, so. precisely. There's whole textbooks mm -hmm. dedicated to his issues. Uh, whole his, subscriptions. Yes, it's devastating. <laughs> but mm -hmm. You start at the entree. All right, mm -hmm. let me explain what I mean by that metaphor. Ooh, French. When I sit down mm -hmm. and I'm creating a setting or a game from scratch, mm -hmm. it starts off separate from the execution of the game. All right, let, let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to Skies of Glass. The Always. I love Skies of Glass. The, well, the question that was posed to me that led to the creation of Skies of Glass was, this was in the mid to late 90s. We were hanging out in a guy's basement. We dug up an old Apple II computer, and we put in the floppy disk for the original Wasteland game. I don't remember mm -hmm. where we got it from. But somehow we dug up all of this. And I believe we, it was Dawn's copy from her old Apple from the 80s. That is wholly possible. I... I Seriously, don't remember. Mm -hmm. Aliens gave it to us. <laughs> right. I, I don't know. But <laughs> we started playing it mm -hmm. where there were several of us sitting there. Each of us generated one of the characters because you got to make a group of four characters. Then you hired on up to three extras. And we played through the game and we were having fun with the post-nuke setting. But obviously Wasteland 
Well, I don't think it's quite as far fetched as Fallout is. Mm-hmm. In other ways, it's even more far fetched. Yeah, and yeah. so super mutants, super robots. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, it's less and more far fetched yeah. depending on how you look at. It. So the question was posed: Wouldn't it be great to have a role playing game that took nuclear war in a much more realistic, plausible scenario? So what if we took these doomsday type scenarios? Why people would launch nukes? What would happen to the world afterward? Radioactivity doesn't give you superpowers. It gives you cancer. Yeah, precisely. Mm-hmm. And it was all these kinds of things. And so that was the appetizer. The appetizer was this what if that really did not have the particular execution of any specific game scenario in mind. It was just this generalized question. With the other game that I've written up, Akavrysos, it was somewhat similar, except it was more I wanted my own spin on space Mm -hmm. opera and so i needed a sandbox to play in so it starts off with the appetizer right we have some theme we're going for here i want this generality then the entree Mm -hmm. comes in with so how do we actually present this to the players what actually is the meal they're going to consume and the example that i used just a little bit ago is i said well what i'm most interested in most able to convey if we're trying to talk about a realistic take of how the world plays out, I can't get closer to reality than the reality I know. Mm -hmm. And so we are going to try and set things as close to home as we can. And Chad, where I said you start with the entree, is all of your games start with this concept you want to play with, not in general, Mm -hmm. but in the execution of a specific campaign. Yeah, You want to play with a theme of what does it mean to be human? Mm-hmm. Okay, there's the game right there. You're going to back up to get a setting from there. You're going to look outward to the players to see how they fit into that. But you start at the stake. You start at this is what we're going to play. We are going to play a game that asks what does it mean to be human. If we did this with Skies of Glass, it would be what if I said, what does St. Louis and the surrounding metro look like after an atomic bomb? And why not? Let's keep slapping other cities and other regions onto it until suddenly a world appeared. Now, I went the other direction. Mm -hmm. I I started from the general concept down to the game. You start at the game and then back up to a concept. I realize I've done done both, actually. Mm -hmm. And I've only done the, like Chad has done it, I've only done that once. Mm -hmm. And that was the noir superhero game. What I wanted to do out of that game more than anything else was... I thought about in the superhero genre, you always have the alternate realities and, you know, something will happen, a world will be changed, and then someone from the other world will come over and tell everyone, hey, things aren't right. And everyone just jumps up to change things. So I thought about it as like, if that were to actually happen for most people, that person is the bad guy trying to change their world to a world that's not theirs. Mm -hmm. That was the concept I wanted to play with that then led to building the whole world around it. But that was the entire concept. I had never put together a game like that before where I started with that one concept I wanted to play with and everything else grew from it. Normally, it's something like I was playing Skies of Glass with Dan and I asked, hey, what happened to Metropolis, Illinois? And he said, I don't know. Write it. (laughs) So I did. Yeah. And then I built this whole history for the town that when I actually run a game set there, 90% of that's never touched. It's in my head. It's in my notes. It's this is what happened from the moment of the bomb to get to this. So because I've thought out that whole world. So then I look at the players. You say that like 
90 percent of that game you never touch or 90 percent of that the, the concept setting. the setting yeah. you never touch but it was I, a thought exercise i will me. actually say you do because as a game master if you're a good game master and you have a really good setting and, a, and you have a good understanding of it yeah 90 percent of it the players don't see or touch or interact with but your understanding of it is your ability to convey the feel of it. And it makes it feel more like a real developed world. And when something happens that's out of your plans, which the players do all the time, you are able to not say, oh man, what would happen? Oh crap. You're able to say, well, this is how the world works. So this is what would happen. And you just keep going with it. Yeah, let me give you one more example to kind of illustrate the point I'm talking about here in terms of you have to think about what interests you as a game master, why you created this setting in this world to begin with. Let's go back to a D&D game. Let's go back to the Gnarl, Sir mm-hmm. William, and Saren game. If I was to run that game for somebody else, obviously the part of that world that I developed and that interested me the most was the Knolls. Mm-hmm. And I even created this entire central desert that was to the south of where we were playing because we were to the north. This entire central desert that the Knolls were from and what their culture was like, what life was like there and what other races lived there and all this stuff, most of which never got mentioned more than in passing in the course of the game. But that was what interested me. That was what excited me. You better believe that if I ran that campaign, now that's not to say everyone mm-hmm. would have to play Knolls, and we're going to get to the player side here in a second, but you better believe that that's going to figure heavily into the kind of story I choose to tell and the parts of the setting we're going to deal with. You're probably going to be in or near that central desert. You are going to encounter the Knolls. Their society is somehow going to intersect the plot because that's what motivated me to start building the setting in the first place, was this thought experiment of what do I want my take on Knowles to look like. And in that game, that was another one where it's like, I wasn't like, oh, I want to learn fantasy and I have this plot line and, you know, these kind of characters. That was another one where my starting point was I have no setting at all. It is complete greenfield, it is complete blank slate. And the players are going to make characters. You know, Wayne made a bard and Dan made his Knoll and Pat made Captain Mistform and actually he made a really <laughs> good character. But I put on the players... I want you to make a character, come up with some background for them, and then you develop the world but there around was, your character. There was still, though, that, that entree you started yeah. with. Because you is, and I had the conversation before you pitched the game, and at work, because we were working together right. at the time about it, the concept that you were playing with before you came into pitch was the idea of a world that has these creatures wandering it so the roads aren't safe. Yeah, so yeah, people yeah. can't travel yeah. the road because I was like, and so the, the story yeah. becomes about a world that's in collapse and about mm-hmm. limited travel and that's about isolation. Right. And I think somewhere, what in there, is a world like where there are tarantulas the size of a house yeah, that roam it, the it's, land? It's the inversion yeah. of yeah. the Tolkien fantasy. It's fantasy where you can't travel three thousand right. miles. You can barely travel three miles mm-hmm. without your party half dead in the process. Yeah. And so th- there was this inversion of that, and then we ended up adding on to that, well, mm-hmm. what if we also played evil yeah. characters and some other stuff? But, you know, once again, there was a point of interest that motivated the game master to tell this story. All so right. I have an example of that, too. Sure. In the noir game that we've mentioned quite a few times, 
I knew I wanted to run the superhero game. I knew the concept of the idea of somebody from an alternate reality mm -hmm. trying to fix it. Some of the other decisions we talked, I talked to the players, they kind of wanted noir. They wanted, you know, we gave, we could do far distant future. We could do modern day. We could do noir. One of the things about noir that had interested me wasn't the actual noir setting or any of that. I had read an article about a automat that was <laughs> just opened in New York, like a modern day automat. And that got me reading all about the old mm -hmm. ones. I was really interested in that. So I was like, okay, so I'm leaning towards this. Then I decided I really want to play with a speakeasy. <laughs> so I want this to be during Prohibition. So that immediately set my years, which wasn't necessarily the right years for a typical noir game. But that's when but people can't fly either. And right. we did that. So screw them. Yeah. So the world, <laughs> the world started to be built around. I have an interest in automat. I have an interest in a speakeasy. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I started developing the boroughs around the city for that and that whole city. But it all came about because I read an article and it's like, I've always thought automats are cool. <laughs> I've never had one in a game. I want to have an automat in the game. Mm -hmm. I want an automat to exist again because I love the idea of the path of least resistance to a grilled cheese. <laughs> Yeah. But then again, it could be a grilled cheese that's been sitting there for a while. You know what? I'm willing to take that gamble if I can walk <laughs> up to something and put in like a $1 bill or something. $1 in the 30s? Oh, my God. You'll eat okay. like a prince. Well, I, I was, I was <laughs> yeah. kind of cutting the difference yeah. there on years. Cause we're, we can get soup for a nickel. It's talking about today versus... Anyways, but the point being, though, they had this, this idea of the quickest route possible between me and a real cheese at any moment. Mm -hmm. There needs to be a corner automat for that. And this. not having to talk to a person. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> precisely. I could just walk up, stick my... You know, which in the okay. game, that actually didn't happen because the old lady that runs it came out and interacted right. and was a character. As an aside, I like to travel. I like to go places. And what I love about being a Midwesterner is that we're very polite here in general. I mean, it's the yeah. sort of Midwest nice thing. Yeah, I love going out to places that aren't in the Midwest and people aren't polite because I'll go to a restaurant and they'll be like, hi, how are you doing today? And I'm like, I'm doing fine. How are you doing? And they stop and they look at me and I flip their whole script. Their eyes get real wide. And they're like, uh, well, I'm doing pretty good. That's great. <laughs> you know, it just seriously it, try going to New Jersey. Seriously, you've got to try it. Oh, oh, I want to, dude. The weirdest take on this that mm -hmm. I have lived through was when I went to New York. There was two parts of New York I went to. I went to Manhattan, which was every stereotype <laughs> you can imagine was completely true. Mm. You know, everyone was kind of a dick and in a hurry, and it was crowded and blah blah blah. Okay, it's a big apple, baby. Yeah. Long Island, though? No iced tea to be found. No, 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 no. They absolutely had Long Island iced teas. But what was very bizarre was the people there were rude nice. <laughs> or nice rude. I'm not really sure how to explain it. Like, I, we went into a pizza place, and it was me, Johnny G, mm -hmm. my sister Christina, and her husband Adam. And the four of us go to this pizza place, and we sit down, and they give us the menus. And we're like, looked at the menus and kind of talking about it. And... They pretty quickly pick up that, oh, are you guys from out of town? And we're yeah. like, yo, yeah, we're, we're from St. Louis, up here first. 
And they immediately take the menus away from us and say, this is the best item on the menu. That's what we're going to bring you. We're going to take good care of you. And just walked off and brought. they picked for us. Like, yeah. we did was not it good? get to order. Yeah, it was. But, I mean, like. Get out of here. They, I'm serious. When yeah. we, they found out we were from out of town. They said, then this is what you're going to have because this is what you got to have when you come in here. They took our menus away. That's this so was not a question. Quintessentially American. I it was it. not a question. It was not up for discussion. Mm-hmm. We never got a word in Edgewise. <laughs> they just simply declared this is what was going mm-hmm. to happen, like restaurateur fiat, and uh, you took know, our menus away and gave us what they had I selected. I mean, they know best, right? You know, <laughs> they know better than you. I let it You're go. You're a hick from St. Louis. <laughs> I let it go because of the fact that it was no longer a restaurant experience. Mm-hmm. It was a cultural experience. Right. <laughs> it was like, a, what does somebody who's effectively going to do the equivalent of a culinary palm reading, right. think I need. And, well, and, and what do you do? Do you look at them and go, no, I want my plain cheese pizza. If you're from <laughs> Manhattan, probably. But I'm from St. Louis. Right. You know, and so, I no, mean, I don't argue with be, these people. Yeah. I mean, we're from St. Louis. We have two modes. Super polite and about to shoot somebody. Right. And <laughs> this did not call for a firearm. Mm-hmm. So, it would, you know, and I had the crazy taxi crap. Yeah. We had the guy who was driving... He was he'd just gotten back from I think it was Afghanistan mm-hmm. and he was driving way the hell too fast up on curbs over sidewalks <laughs> part of the time down the wrong way of traffic. I got that in DC. It was pretty amazing. I'm not making this I thought up. I was gonna die. I'm I not, got it in Chicago. Oh yeah, I totally I dude, I have never checked my seatbelt so many times <laughs> in my entire life. Because I'm like, wow, I I'm gonna die and Fortunately, when I'm at the pearly gates, I'm going to have a story to tell. Right. I'm going to be holding up the line because it's like St. Peter needs to hear this. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't know what they wrote in the book, but, dude, you got to hear this. You got to hear how it actually <laughs> went down. But, you know, all right. So I think one of the reasons it's mm-hmm. important to look at this is, first of all, the parts that interest you are the ones you're going to have developed the most. All right. So if we take Skies of Glass again as a thought experiment about what the world looks like after a new, because that's what interested me, then that's the part I'm going to develop the most. Now, other ideas came into my mind. You know, what if there was a place that served as a juxtaposition mm-hmm. to that, that was like the world pre-bomb? And out of that originally came the city of Atlanta, and it later got moved to yeah. what is now Jacksonville. That's where that bit of the setting came from. And I started thinking about what the areas around St. Louis would end up looking like in support of or in opposition to St. Louis. And that's where some other things came from. And, you know, all these different things that intrigued me, these ideas that caught my mind, became the major talking points of the plot. And, yes, there were things that I fudged on the fly because characters and players don't always go where you want. Marketplace sure. of ideas. Mm-hmm. But I still had this starting point and these high points that were based on what interested me. And let me add a second sub-point to that, which is we have had games go south, and I in particular have been guilty of this, because I have agreed to run a game that was about something that didn't interest me in a setting. Yep. And the game ends up dying because even if the players are having a great time, you know, they love what I'm selling, but I hate running the restaurant. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of the automat business. <laughs> I have made all the grilled cheese I can make. I am you done. as much rude Manhattan pizza as you can stuff in their faces, and you're just finished. And so, you know, you 
have to look at that and say, look, I asked this question. I played with this scenario because that interested me. And so it's important Mm -hmm. that we hit on that. So I did the same thing when I started thinking about Metropolis. You know, what was interesting to me about the city already, but then what is the most interesting thing about Skies of Glass to me? I really, you know, trigger on the GCs. Genetic construct animals for anyone who doesn't. So it's genetically re-engineered animals. I love them. So I knew that when I was building the history of what happened to Metropolis during all of this, there had to be some GCs there pre-bombing that then have been bred throughout the time there. That became a major part of the city for me because that is my favorite part of the setting. Yeah. It's kind of in the same thing. You could do that with anything generic fantasy setting. Mm -hmm. What do you really like? I like dwarves. Yeah. Not that I personally like dwarves, but <laughs> nobody likes dwarves. If somebody liked dwarves, hey. <laughs> if somebody liked dwarves, they could. I that would be what they would develop. Campaign. Nobody wanted to play a dwarf. And I everyone played a dwarf. It. You did, and I love you for it, Wayne. But nobody else wanted to play a dwarf, and they f- my dwarf campaign. And honestly, Screw them. Well, okay, put it to you like this: Larry and I would definitely play dwarves. <laughs> I love the dwarf story in Dragon Age. Right. So that's what kind of got me jumping at saying dwarf so that would be something. did you notice that in this fifth edition campaign that i ran that I, i've talked about in the show <laughs> there was a great empty dead dwarven ruin yeah that is the ruin of the dwarf game that you guys on <laughs> by the way it was the same nice. i don't know if you noticed the big huge thing hanging off the ceiling and all that yeah it's the same thing i didn't catch it <laughs> but now i appreciate you it so much more all done <laughs> but it's the same thing let's say a fantasy setting you really like dwarves then yeah. that would be something that you're going to develop in your game mm-hmm. and then nobody's gonna care for it no. because nobody likes dwarves not a one <laughs> <laughs> okay well that does kind of tie familiar. into the second part which is marketplace of ideas mm-hmm. once you've put this out there you now have to look at the player angle all right let's start with the i think is what is the more practical question Maybe not the most important question, but the most practical question, which is what is it the players can reasonably consume and understand in the course of a campaign? There's an idea that we derided earlier in the show's run, like years ago, and I will still deride today. Because <laughs> we're not wrong. Well, we've been ever. wrong. Well, certainly we're not on this. Though, with everything <laughs> else, we were never wrong. Reality just changed mm-hmm. as no, we slipped. You've from- been wrong. Chad, on the other hand, hasn't. Oh, well, no, I, no, no, they, no. I, I came we, from... We rise and... Well, actually, we don't... I was about to say fail. No, we just rise and rise yeah. together. I'm telling you, <laughs> if it doesn't line up, it's because things we said earlier in the show's run, they are true in the Berenstein Bear universe. Right. All right, now, in this messed up reality, <laughs> you hear Berenstein Bears, then I understand things go differently. But in the universe I'm mm-hmm. from, originally... This is how it all worked back then. All right, but I, this is one that's true in both universes, mm-hmm. okay? So with the Berenstein Bears slash Berenstain Bears, this is true in both, which is there's this terrible game idea that Chad and I have encountered in the past that we call the Tour de Realms. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what yeah. the Tour de Realms is, is you get someone who loves the setting or thinks that the setting alone can carry mm-hmm. a story and what they do is you make your character and you go from place to place to place. And that's kind of it. Yeah. You go to this city and you're supposed to be wild by the fact that you're in this city. And it's like, well, now we're going to go to the land of such and such and see the dinosaurs. Okay. We, now mm-hmm. that we've done that, now we're going to go over here and see the pirate people. 
and you have okay. to meet Darth Vader, and you have to meet Han Solo, and you have yeah. to meet Chewbacca. That's a slight variation of getting NPCs crammed in your face, but I think mm-hmm. still plays out about the same as the Tour de Realms, which is a plotless, literal meandering just about the landscape, simply seeing stuff. Yeah. That's not going to carry a game. Now, you've put cool things in your setting. Great. You cannot deal with all of them. Mm-hmm. Some of them have to get pushed to the side. Another thought alongside of this is the more unusual your setting is, the more slowly you have to introduce these ideas. Even if the players find all 25,000 of your highly developed alien races fascinating, <laughs> they cannot learn them all in the course of a one-year campaign. You have to pick a part of the universe to talk about. Going back to Mass Effect, one of the things they discuss in the making of Mass Effect is that the major protagonist-slash-antagonist of the second Mass Effect game, Cerberus, was an afterthought and a throwaway villain in the first game. They did not develop it until the second game. It was simply not something they had space to develop and was not something they had interest in developing. And even if they had, there was already plenty to learn in that universe. You did not need more races and more Mm -hmm. factions and more proper nouns and more cultures and whatever to fill up your lexicon. So to uh, put this in D&D ter- type of terms, you're saying something along the lines of like the setting you're making has flying castles in it, for example. You start off your campaign in a crashed flying castle. So you you introduce the idea of flying castles, that something happened to make this one crash. Yeah, and right there, I mean, there's a ton yeah. of questions. Exactly. Yeah. How did it fly in the first place? Right. Who built it? Why did they build it? How did it crash? Who's living there now? And we've played games before with no flying castles, but just take that example. Imagine a game where it was like that. And the the players first go, hey, introduce each other. Oh, hey, loud crash happened over here. Oh, well, let's check it out because we're adventurers. We go over there, and it is a crash castle. Described in intricate detail. We comb over all of it. It is amazing. That's it. It's (laughs) just a pile of rocks. And we're looking at the game master going, okay. And he's like, role play. Like, okay, cool setting. We have flying castles and one crashed, and this is a pile of crashed castle. And we've gone over all of it, and there's, like, dead people in here, and we don't know who they are. And and what? What? What What are we doing here? So earlier in the episode, we talked about the why is the world like this. And then we talked about how after we get the why, how is it like this, which is, like, sort of the details and and the the little fiddly bits of the thing. The next one is... Why do I care? Why do I care? Yeah. Right. That's well, what... it's the what. Exactly. What the hell are you doing? You know, yep. what is there for the players to do? It's a pot hook. Yeah. What are your pot hooks? Yeah. Right. You want to bait the hook. You want to throw it out. And we want to reel them in and do something. That's the problem with the sort of Tour de Realms things. That's the problem with these intricate worlds. That's the problem with these worlds that are nothing but lore. Huge amounts of races and lore and factions, all this. And when the players get hooked into it, there's really no room for them. There's nothing to do. We played in a detective game like that years and years and years ago where it was a mystery. Someone had been murdered and we were various police or reporters, whatever. And we combed over the entire scene. Now, there wasn't like a connection that we were missing or something like that. We did everything. We rolled every piece of dice. We rolled every skill. We rolled every ability. We combined abilities. We talked about it. Then we went over it all again, and it was a dead body and a murder weapon and a location 
in a city that had crime that you're in. And we have no clues. And that's that. And then we're like, that was the session. And we asked him, we asked the game master, it's like, was there, were we going anywhere with this? What were we, what, what was now? What, what did we miss? He's like, no, no, you guys did great. That was awesome. You did great. We're like, what happened here? So I look at MMOs as kind of an example of some of this, of City of Heroes and World of Warcraft both did this very well. They have huge backstories. Mm-hmm. They have plot, you know, Bibles. They have all of this. Some of it's nonsensical, but they do have a lot. Right. It's but pretty, it's there. And it, right. Interesting. Together. Yeah. If you don't care about any of that, you don't have to interact with any of that. Mm-hmm. You do the quest, the story, the gameplay, you move on. But if you do care about it, there's things you can click on that let you read it. I kind of look at that the same way when I'm trying to do a a world that I've created all this back stuff in. It's there in my mind or my sheet. If the players want to interact with it, but it's not my place to force them to. Yeah. That's not the fun for everyone that's playing one of those games to go and click on it and read the backstory. I enjoy that, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean, say, Chad enjoys that. So I want to have that available for them if they want it. But the Tour de Realms is forcing that down someone's throat. I think you can go the, the opposite direction with that, too. You want, at minimum, the world to be at least a little bit bigger than what the players are going to explore and interact with. Because you need wiggle room. When, not if, when they move off of your rails and they start asking questions and exploring, you need to have a little some a little meat there for them to explore in the setting. Yeah. Right. And it needs to have that flavor. Otherwise, you go back to the, like the detective story. The entire game is takes place in one room. I couldn't even tell you what city we were in. I couldn't even tell you what year it was. I know it wasn't the 1930s, but that was about it. There was nothing else there to look at, to explore, to do anything with. One of the questions on these was, how do you start building a campaign in one of these? And for me, a lot of that answer comes down to... I don't actually build my campaign until the players have created their characters. Well, and yes, and, and this is where we come even more fully to the player side of thing, which I realize we've been talking about, but I, I set that part aside to talk about the practical yep. that you can't introduce everything. And it per the tour day realms, just because you thought something was cool. Doesn't mean the players care about it, but you have to look at what the players are interested in. So if I create a game and a setting and all this kind of stuff, when I say game, I mean like a system or whatever, And I sit down with the players and say, okay, so here's kind of the elevator pitch. What is it you guys want to play? You know, what do you want to be in this world? What interests you in this world? That's where I have to start picking up on your guys' cues and collaborating here to say, okay, so these are the parts of the setting that we're going to draw out. You know, for example, in Good Old Skies of Glass, we have mentioned that there is a microculture of sorts that exists primarily within space and within near solar system colonies. But one of the things that you guys requested for the current campaign is you didn't want to be on spaceships flying around Mm -hmm. because that kind of changed the feel of the setting. So guess what we've not really dealt with? I mean, it's there in the background, but you guys spent only part of one session falling falling <laughs> and even then you were in earth orbit that's as yeah. far as you got from the earth was earth orbit and only spent part of one session there before you hit the ground on earth and have not left it since now i've got cool stuff out there i could run an entire campaign on the moon colony in particular 
That's never going to come up in this game Mm -hmm. because I have written things that interested me because I was curious what would a moon colony look like and how would it develop once it had only limited contact with Earth and so on and so forth. I found it fascinating, but that's not what you guys wanted to interact with. At least not yet. Oh, right. Precisely. For the moment. And so I'm not going to stuff that in your face. I'm not going to drag you there. I have to look at and develop the things that you guys you know, you're you're building off of what I have by saying, look at what you were playing in the first round of this when you were playing the merchants on the river, which was totally about selling wine, the whole plot. Yes, <laughs> which, you know, but the point is, though, that I had to think about river traffic mm-hmm. and about what trade looked like off of the trade roads, the literal trade roads and develop a side of the game that, to this point, I had thought about, but had not deeply thought about. Now, certainly there were points where it touched things I thought about. It touched St. Louis. It touched Cape Girardeau. It touched, you were listening to the AP, something called the Carver Clan, which is a group of sort of bad guys. But the point being, though, that it touched, it intersected with things that I cared about. No, they're, they're bad guys. They're not sort of bad guys. Well, bad guys, okay. Yeah, they are <laughs> bad guys. They're pretty freaking terrible. But the, the point being, though, that, you know, it's... Not wholly divorced from what I cared about, mm-hmm. but it's also not wholly subject to what I cared about. Right. Let me give an example from the space opera game. Mm-hmm. So when I sat down to develop a space opera setting, I knew that there were certain qualities that I wanted out of the space opera setting. For example, I'm not a big fan of shields. Mm-hmm. Shields to me have always felt like magic. Magic and also, I, I don't like the idea of free damage. I like mm-hmm. the idea that when something happens that has a tangible result. You know, I don't mind there being something like a blade of armor or whatever, but I like there to be something real that's happening. I wanted there to be, accepting certain things have to be skipped over to make large-scale sci-fi work. I wanted it to be pretty realistic in its physics, pretty realistic in its scale, pretty realistic in its culture. I wanted the aliens to generally feel pretty alien. There were certain things I wanted out of this setting, and those are in there, right? Now, that's more than a player could consume in a campaign. There was a mistake that I made in running it, this was years back, where I gave this like three or four hour lecture on the setting, and I was like, so what do you guys want to be? And I probably lost you guys after about 10 minutes. (laughs) I mean, this was a horrible, horrible (laughs) Mm -hmm. choice on my part. I did not give you guys a few kind of high-level pitches of like, okay, well, there's this culture, and here's a few pictures, and any of these look cool to you. Yeah. And, you know, here, Here's kind of this sample. Merchants, mercs, pirates. Yeah, here's a few, here's kind Politics. of a few archetypes of what you can play, and here's sort of a few pictures of aliens. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what are you latching on to? And then start to sift through that marketplace of ideas. Because even if I show you an alien, you're like, oh, that looks cool. What are they like? Well, such and such and such. Really, that sounds terrible. Because yeah. I wanted to play something like this. Oh, okay. Well, now I'm closer to what you want. You have to narrow things down based on, one, what the GM has developed, and two, what the players are interested in. Out of that, you now actually get the plot points and the bits of the setting you're going to focus on. You start to get a sense of the story that you can tell. You can start to figure out which of your big world-changing events can you deal with in the course of this game versus which ones you can't. And you start to narrow down, you kind of winnow away from that giant buffet mm-hmm. to the meal the players are going to actually consume. 
Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I like to do at that point, the players have made their characters. I know what they're interested in, at least so much as they've made the characters and they've talked about it and they've talked about what they want to do. From there, I'm looking for, there are some concepts I want to play with, maybe some scenes. And I start thinking, why do they care? And that's one of the things I start to think about right away with the overall campaign is why would these characters, as the players have defined them, they're not going to look like that in a few sessions after they've played them, I'm sure. (laughs) But as they're defined, why do they care? And that's where I start with my campaign building. Mm-hmm. And then start looking into, they care about this NPC. Okay, how is that NPC going to be involved with the plot? And mm-hmm. I try to build my campaigns like that entirely around the characters. While it may be bigger things happening in the world, what's important is what they're interacting with to me. So that's why I never start my campaign idea until the characters have been created, the player mm-hmm. characters. So to go back to the uh, Flying Castle idea, I don't know why Flying Castles are just stuck in my head today. Such a terrible idea. The expense, the effort, and if there's a Is failure... A Studio Ghibli thing? Howl's Moving Castle. Oh, yeah. I don't think that flies. That walks, doesn't it? No, I thought it flies. There's, there's some, uh, one of them that uh, with Flying Castles. I don't remember which one. Hmm. Castle in the Sky. Yeah, that just sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Howl's Moving Castle crawled along the ground. That's... Sounds about right, yeah. And, you know, okay, so why would the players care about a castle that fell on the ground? Well, okay, uh, how about uh, something along the lines of, like, if they were hired by a merchant because the caravan w- is late and they, okay, find these five people. Okay, well, they retrace the steps of the caravan and, oh, there's a castle that crashed on top of them. Ew. <laughs> or they get, they get, I don't like this adventure anymore. <laughs> they get to the castle and they see one of the stained glass windows hasn't shattered and yeah. their family crest is in the window. <gasps> Why is their family crest in a window of a castle that crashed? Now they're connected to it. They're the chosen one. I was more going to go with they find four of the people that they were looking for, but number five is not there, not body or anything. But there are there's, or- there's orcs. 170 tons of rock. <laughs> they might be under it <laughs> because... The entire, all the denizens of the castle, they're kind of all mushed together now, and I don't like this campaign anymore. But one of them is just their feet are sticking out, and they oh, have these yes. ruby red shoes on. Yeah, the, exactly. Their legs curl up. you got to find the ruby red shoes. Yeah, unfortunately, since I'm playing a number Hulk, it's pretty easy to get all this information. Yeah. I just start going through the remains of the castle. Ew. I'm done with this campaign. <laughs> Let's go back, though, Chad, to your D&D game. Mm-hmm. You had this crumbling world. Mm-hmm. It was difficult to travel. You had these evil entities, which were originally vampires, and then got <laughs> changed into yeah. these immortal reincarnating right. wizards yeah. of sorts. So vampires. Vampires are stupid. Not vampires. Yeah. <laughs> totally, not vampire. <laughs> totally not vampires. I had made a comment to him beforehand, too, that I had just watched. Uh, it was Gamers 2, The Darkness Rising. Mm. And there was a bard in it that I thought was really cool. And I started talking about, I kind of like to play a bard. Mm-hmm. That built into his idea, too, of... Well, who you travels die between... a lot? Is yeah. that what it yeah. is? Who's crazy enough yeah. to travel between the cities? Yeah. yeah. I mean, somebody's going to do it. People, unfortunately, die on a somewhat regular basis because buildings that were not meant to be climbed, they climb yeah. with mixed success. Mm-hmm. I mean, somebody's going to do it. It doesn't matter how dangerous it is. You know, somebody's going to pet the lion and get killed. And it's that simple. When I chose to play a knoll... That worked right in because Chad's like, okay, well, I've got this concept mm-hmm. of this world where you can't travel and everything's crumbling and blah, blah, blah. Well, gnolls are a predatory species. 
It there were the monsters. Yeah, yeah, maybe we were part of the problem. Right. Maybe not the entirety of it, but maybe we were one of the reasons you can't travel anymore. Mm-hmm. We kind of wrecked things. And even if we didn't win the war, we did the damage. Yep. We burnt the cities. And so all of these things between what Chad was trying to get out of this, which was these themes that he had, the highlights that he wanted to cover in his games, the kinds of things that he wanted us to do and he was interested in, and we found the spot where that converged with what the players' interests were and how, one, in some cases, we could shop from Chad's buffet and say, well, I'm take this, this, and this. But Chad, in turn, could also say, well, now that I see, aha, you're interested mm-hmm. in the chicken wings, I know to maybe pull some of the jello salad and put out some different <laughs> flavors of chicken wings because here's, mm-hmm. here's an idea we need to build on. I love torturing my metaphors. <laughs> but the point being, though, that he saw... I was going to say, where on earth was that? <laughs> What? But okay, well, let me give you. Let me move away from the Jello metaphor. salad with chicken wings in it. Yes, right. let me give you something that's out. He was torturing it, the metaphor. He was choking the chicken. It, I was. It, is this a St. Louis food I have not encountered yet? What, chicken, chicken wings? wings? No, in Jello. Oh no, oh, no, 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 that's that's, just that's a twenties, thirties thing. Yeah, yeah. that's a post boy. Yeah, yeah. Look it up sometime. Meat in Jello is a thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I know, but I didn't know. Okay, no, 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 never no. That, that, mind. That, but, I right, just not gonna so, ask any questions. I was within Chad's world, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so he came up with, these are themes I want to cover. I said, I want to play an old. We found where those intersected. Chad had to develop his world a little more. I had to develop my character and his stuff a little and more. And I wanted you guys to have ownership of a huge swath of the world that your character was part of from or related to. But there were things within the setting that you added mm-hmm. that rift off of what i gave you but were ultimately your creation for example you had both extremes mm-hmm. of the knolls and i had not developed either because narl was trying to cut this middle path yeah. of saying humans have a point but we shouldn't lose our identity in the process you had this sort of like terrorist extremist group <laughs> called the black mask Mm. which he went up against and then to make fun of them, took on their identity and flipped it and created his clan, the white mask. So they were one extreme. The other extreme was there were basically a bunch of domesticated gnolls, for lack of a better way to put it, who were working as toughs and dock workers and Mm -hmm. had effectively sold out completely. You know, they'd given up their entire feral nature to, if you've seen that episode of Star Trek, the next generation where Worf, stumbles across that colony of Klingons that's being kept by the Romulans and the Romulans are trying to culture them, but in Mm -hmm. the process has stripped them of their entire identity. And it was kind of like that, you know, it was, and so the point is that you can see where these ideas overlapped. And so that's how we got from Chad's starting point of this, what if, Mm -hmm. and the story I want to tell is about, isolated cities in a crumbling fantasy world to the details of Narl trying to convince longshoremen <laughs> that there's something more than muscle to move barrels and boxes. Yeah. So these terrorist knolls, do they knock castles out of the sky? No. No castles <laughs> in the sky. They would uh, have. I'm, I'm sure. They, I mean, they but there were, were people filled with spiders. Yeah. Ew. <laughs> was there a castle on the moon? Because we never got to it, but there were moon people. There were definitely moon people. Because that moon would be men, that maidens. would technically be a castle in the sky. 
if there were a castle on the moon? Uh, you know, you would have had to go there. But you didn't. <laughs> we didn't. No, that campaign ended. I don't even remember why. But anyway, I do know why this episode's ended. <laughs> so once again, check the show notes for links to a couple different things. I think there's an episode or two I'm going to link in there. I'm going to link, of course, the Gamers Table Kickstarter and Fear the Con. No link yet, but stay tuned for that. Probably next episode, there will be a link to that. So be ready for that. Fear the Con 2020 is coming around. And so we definitely look forward to seeing all of you guys there. I know y'all are going to be there. None of you are going to miss this. (laughs) Every single one. Every single one of y'all. So thank you guys for tuning in. Have a great week, great games, and this particular pizza, and we will catch you next time. This has been a production of Fear the Booth, copyright 2019. Listeners are free to use this episode in a non-commercial endeavor, so long as credit is provided to feartheboot.com. You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. If you wish to support this show and its related endeavors, you can do so at patreon.com slash feartheboot.